In our chaotic, rapidly changing modern world, many of us have come to rely on science to provide a sense of order. But science doesn't always work like that. And so it may be disconcerting to learn that there is no single definitive list of all life on Earth. And there never has been. In this episode, we take you inside the world of taxonomy, where competing lists, rogue taxonomists and recent accusations of anarchy have revealed the messy struggle to classify the world around us. I'm Gemma Ware and this is The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Today I'm joined by Signe Dean, Science and Technology Editor for The Conversation in Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Signe. Thank you so much for having me. So on this podcast, uh, as you know, our tagline is The World Explained by Experts. And today's episode is actually a bit unique in that we're sort of discussing how the world isn't completely explained by experts. And while that may sound a bit disconcerting, I actually found this story that you worked on pretty amusing did, yeah, did you find it funny I know what you mean I think some aspects of the story are quite funny because it has to deal with something that we don't think about every day which is how scientists disagree sometimes in quite visceral ways uh, but it is one of those stories that gives us a glimpse into how scientists clash and how they resolve their differences in very practical, if sometimes messy ways. And yeah, in this case, it's something most people wouldn't realize is an issue. Exactly. I didn't realize that this was an issue because this is about a list, a list of all life on Earth. And it turns out that that just doesn't exist. There is no list, which is crazy to me. Yeah, right? Because we all know how species work and we all know that there are species and we assume that someone out there is making lists of them. But the fact that there's no single agreement about it, I wasn't aware of this either until Stephen Garnett came to us with this piece of research. Now, he's a professor of conservation and sustainable livelihoods at Charles Darwin University here in Australia. And his career has several prongs. One of them is being an ornithologist, which is someone who studies birds and therefore, you know, probably finds new species of birds, makes lists of them and Mm -hmm. so on. But he also works in conservation, which is a very, very important aspect for environmental scientists. And taxonomy, which is the science of making lists of species, categorizing them, understanding who belongs in what branch of the tree of life, that's actually very, very important for conservation itself, because if we don't know what's out there, then how can we protect it? Mm, Absolutely. And we were intrigued by what Stephen has been working on as well. So we called him up for a chat about this list or the lack thereof. Stephen, thank you for coming on the show to help shed some light on this, let's be honest, surprisingly angsty bit of science that is taxonomy. Yeah, 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 sure. The people I talk to haven't a clue. There's a there's this chaos underneath, and scientists don't really know what species are, and they've all got different opinions. Yeah, it's mad. <laughs> Unsettling, really. <laughs> it is. You know, any kid going into the biology class thinks their teacher knows everything, don't they? And then you realise that the scientists don't even agree. So. Yes. I have to admit, like up until this moment that I came across your article in the conversation. I'd kind of assumed that there was a list like this, that someone somewhere kept a kind of a a record of all the world's species. And I think people might be quite kind of astonished that that isn't the case. Why hasn't it existed until now? 
it's an enormous task. There is a group called the Catalogue of Life who've been doing this for the last 20 years or so, bringing together all the lists of the world species. But they're constantly being updated. And every time you change a name, you've got to look back at what the species concept was historically. So some of these names go back to the late 18th century. And so someone will come along with a name and it's, it isn't on this list, but it was used historically. And no one has managed to bring it all together. When you think of the, the millions of species that are out there, and each with a history of naming. A species might have several names, and unless you know all the synonyms, you can't really produce a list that is understandable to someone who's using an old list. Stephen told me that part of the confusion stems from the current rules for how to identify a new species. As it is, if you want to describe a new species, you don't need peer review. You can put it in a book. You can put it in a magazine. Uh, so long as you have followed the rules for naming it, it's a name that hasn't been used before. It follows the right lesson. But anybody can name a species, and there's no constraints on that. And the issue is not so much that, is that that name is then accepted until someone comes along and refutes it and publishes another name. And given how difficult it is to keep up with these publications, particularly if they're somewhere obscure in a book, means that some people are following some taxonomy, some people are following others, some taxonomy is accepted, some not, and you get multiple different lists of species, depending on whose taxonomy is followed. While this might sound like a bit of an esoteric, even slightly silly problem, what's at stake is actually really important. We communicate in terms of species units in many different fields, whether it's medicine, whether it's agriculture, whether it's conservation. Unless we're talking in the same units, we're not communicating efficiently. And if you've got people using different lists of things, then there are consequences for conservation of species and if something is on a list to be protected then investment is made to protect that species it can have effects on whether projects can go ahead or the threatened species is there but if the list is wrong then there's a lot of wasted effort and whole livelihoods can be affected by it if you've got a threatened species or not messy taxonomy also causes other problems if you don't have the right name then the customs people can't stop trade in a particular species. If you don't know the taxonomy of your pest species, you might be trying to control a pest and it's the wrong species, or it's um, actually two, three species. The costs have been estimated in many millions of dollars if we don't have this fundamental understanding of the way nature is organised. And so in 2017, Stephen and a colleague, ornithologist Les Christidis, published a paper calling out what they believed to be the problems with the way species are identified. They soon found themselves at the centre of a taxonomic controversy. You co-published an article in the journal Nature titled Taxonomy Anarchy Hampers Conservation. So tell us, if you would, why you call this moment anarchy. Well, the, the anarchy comes from our editor of Nature. 
It was very useful, but as authors, we would never have dared call taxonomists anarchists since their whole reason for being is creating order. Stephen and Les argued that taxonomy needed a set of rules about what should be called a species, because there aren't any. Species, they wrote, are often created or dismissed arbitrarily, according to the individual taxonomist's adherence to one of at least 30 definitions. They proposed that changes to taxonomy of complex organisms, such as plants or animals, should be overseen by the International Union of Biological Sciences, a global governance body for biology. We published this paper. I had never realised this would cause a fuss. But cause a fuss, it did. There were several papers written in response to it, one of which had 184 authors, I think, that were refusing some of our points. The critics argued that regulation of taxonomy in this way was untenable and even flawed in terms of scientific integrity. Another response paper accused them of trying to suppress freedom of scientific thought and likened Stephen and his co-author to Stalin's scientific advisor, a man called Trofim Lysenko. Then ensued a back and forth. A polite one, Stephen says, mind you. And he did actually come to accept some of the criticism. And it was a civilised, scientific discussion, just as should occur, even though there were probably some strong feelings there. And then, once that was all over, we thought, well, shame to just let it lie there. There's some issues here that we need to deal with that are causing real-life problems for people trying to use taxonomic lists. In the aftermath, a correspondence started up between Stephen, his co-author, and the lead authors of the main response paper. Eventually, they decided to meet in person in the hopes of making progress towards this elusive single authoritative list of all the species on Earth. We had about 20 people come to Charles Darwin University, and on Charles Darwin's birthday in 2020, the month before COVID closed us all down, we got together And uh, we had a wonderful time in Darwin, three days, when we talked about some principles for taxonomic lists. But uh, for a while there, it was was quite exciting having called them all anarchists. What are these meetings like? Are they quite heated? No, 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 very civilised. And when we met in Darwin, it was extremely pleasant. It was lovely to meet these people. They're, They're really nice people. So many of these taxonomists are working, they work at all hours of day and night. It's their life. It's their, their passion. It's... Many work for nothing. Oh, really? They're volunteers? Oh, yes, yes. It relies on enthusiasts. and The world benefits enormously from having people just dedicated to particular obscure groups of organisms of which they're the global expert. So they're not academics necessarily? Oh, no, not necessarily at all. Some are. Some are. There's plenty of professionals, but there's plenty of people who are doing it just because they are so absorbed in nature. Hmm. So they're kind of... The benevolent librarians of the world, I guess. <laughs> yes, okay, yes. <laughs> Biodiversity librarians. I wonder if they'd like that phrase. It's better than anarchists, anyway. At this 2020 gathering, these academics and benevolent biodiversity librarians discussed how to overcome some of the problems with taxonomy. This included facing one problem very close to home rogue taxonomists tell me what they do what they're how big a part of the problem are they well they're one of the reasons for an interest in this there are people who know the rules of naming but then go out and name lots of new species 
that are not necessarily valid, they can't justify those species, but because they put a name on them, they have to be recognized until someone refutes them. And that is a lot of work to refute a species. And if someone is producing hundreds of new descriptions named after their dog and their girlfriend and all sorts of things like that, the thing is they're entities that are out there that then have to be considered through all the processes of taxonomy as though they were real. And are these rogue taxonomists, are they actually in the field? Yes, yes, they are. They know enough about it to be difficult. So there's one chap. Um, now, I don't have first-hand records of this, but he's been into seminars where people are talking about what they've been doing in taxonomy, sat at the back, taken a few pictures of it, then rushed out and published it first, which has caused huge consternation. It's, uh, <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, in a sense, some of that's valid species. They've just got their name on it first, which is, which is just unethical. When a segment of the scientific community which studies a particular grouping of species refuses to accept a new species named by one of these rogues, this refusal itself creates another problem. The name is valid under the rules of a group like the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, but they're not then being accepted by the community. And so you're getting multiple lists again. So unless there are good rules around what can it get accepted onto lists, then you have this confusion. Then there's the question of what to do when new developments in science change taxonomists' understanding of what makes a species. The study of genetics, in particular, has created major problems when it comes to delineating species. The genetic stuff is throwing the stuff into chaos. The more we learn about genetics, the more we realise how continuous evolution is, the more difficult and the more it relies on the scientists to agree on the taxonomy. It's not a matter of identifying something and that being an absolute truth. To get a little technical for a moment here, one issue is with something called mitochondrial DNA, or mDNA. It's found in the mitochondria, the part of a cell that helps to produce the energy that cells need. In animals, mDNA evolves much more quickly than what's called nuclear DNA. And that can cause confusion for scientists analysing samples to determine whether or not they've actually identified a new species. You've got two species side by side, but their mitochondrial DNA of one is so good, it goes hundreds of kilometres ahead and takes over inside the genome of the other species. So that means that if you just take a kind of a DNA sample from one species, you can't really be convinced that you've got the right... Not necessarily, no. It's not... It makes... (laughs) It makes, makes it, it complicated. complicated, yes. Hmm. Yes, so people have been using mitochondrial DNA as a marker of between species, and it often is, but sometimes it's not because of this new mitonuclear combination that's found to be so important for energy production. Hmm. It's fabulous stuff. It is fabulous. And then I guess it means that your processes have to evolve or have space to evolve as science discovers more about life. Exactly. Exactly. Every generation, well, every seems every few years, there's some new technology that's brought in to taxonomy to elucidate differences between populations. What about like AI? Is that also going to create some headaches? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that AI will have a role in taxonomy. I haven't seen it yet, but I bet it will do. While genetics is a still developing scientific field, 
Stephen explained to me that the need for flexibility in taxonomy in the face of new scientific discoveries is not new, and it can be traced back to the work of Darwin himself. Taxonomy was thought of as being a natural process that you could identify discrete units. They'd all been created by God. It was all very convenient. And then along came evolution and natural selection, and it was realised it's a continuous process. And then the more we learn about genetics, the more we realise how continuous evolution is, the more difficult that became. And the more it relies on the scientists to agree on the taxonomy. It's not a matter of identifying something and that being an absolute truth. You mean there's no, it's black or white? That's right. That's right. Would the world was like that. (laughs) So if we're to create a definitive list of all life on Earth, we need methods to identify species that are strict enough to prevent anarchy, but flexible enough to allow for adjustments as new scientific discoveries come to light and new technologies become available. It will also need to leave room for different rules for different groups of species. The characteristics that might be used to identify a species in one group are often quite different to those used in another. So you can't divide it too finely, but working at the class level with reptiles and birds, and it's quite possible, and that's likely to be the way people will want to do it. Perhaps with our nature article, our problem was, yeah, you could do it for everything, but uh, being persuaded otherwise. Since their meeting in 2020, Stephen says this group has made a great deal of progress towards creating that elusive single list of all life on Earth. They've published a set of principles on how lists should be governed, and half a dozen papers outlining characteristics of a good list. They've also reached out to the taxonomic community to ask whether they actually want a single list of species, and if so, whether they see a role for coordinated governance of such a list. And in fact, in a paper we published last year in Proceedings of the National Academies of Science, we reported that the vast majority of people did want a single list. They could see its value. They could see a value in there being coordinated governance. And it's given us a lot of confidence to proceed. The group continues to meet every few months. It's also working with the Catalogue of Life to improve its processes and to consult with other taxonomists to develop methods that will work for the community as a whole. When do you think it might be possible to get an actual list? Oh, I'm hoping we might have something by 2030. 2030, It's It's a slow process, but it's been going on for several hundred years, so 2030 is pretty ambitious. Do you ever feel like, you know, why can't we just all agree on this now? I used to feel that. <laughs> but now? I've, to be, I've been told off often enough that I realise that's not possible. You've come round to the slower approach. Oh, the, the, some of these processes of getting global agreement about something like that is so slow. Then necessarily you've got to bring people along. I mean, just devil's advocate, what would happen if you got it wrong or if you did it too fast? People wouldn't buy into it. You just carry on with the current process. And you're just trying to nudge people into something that's not too radical, but just is a little bit more ordered. 
That's it for this episode. Thanks to Stephen Garnett for speaking with us and to our colleagues Signadine and Noor Gilani, who worked with Stephen on the original story for The Conversation. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode. We also recommend that you sign up for Science Wrap, a weekly newsletter that Signa curates, highlighting the best science and tech stories from The Conversation each week. You'll find the link for how to subscribe in our show notes as well. This episode was written and produced by Katie Flood with assistance from Mend Marawani. I'm Gemma Ware, the show's executive producer. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens and our theme music is by Nita Saal. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. You can connect with us on Instagram at theconversation.com, on X, formerly known as Twitter, at TC underscore audio, or email us directly at podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for The Conversation's free daily newsletter by clicking on the link in our show notes. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. And please do rate and review the show wherever you listen. If you're doing so on Spotify, there's a button that says, what did you think of this episode? Please do leave some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.